earlier, I forgot to introduce Joel to you. Uh, Chris and Brooke uh, are actually at a high school reunion, so Chris wasn't here to to, uh, to lead worship for us. Joel has been here for a number of years. Uh, got his start on like a youth ministry praise team, and uh, we're just very happy. So. Very, very happy to have him fill in. Always, always enjoy, especially as a guy that like saw him when he first started, and then to see him up here leading worship. Um, thankful to a faithful God who who grows us always. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to the book of First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. If you do not have a Bible or do not own a Bible, underneath underneath the benches there are some pew Bibles. And I would just encourage you to use one of those. We're going to be on page 1014 uh, in the Pew Bibles. And if you don't have one, that, just consider that our gift to you. Over the past three weeks, Dave, ha- Over the past three weeks, Dave has been doing a short series to wrap the summer up where he's talking about our identity as a church. Uh, talking about our mission statement as a church. So two weeks ago, we talked about how we as a church need to trust God's grace. We need to trust God's grace that he has shown us in our lives, that he has shown us on the cross, and that he shows us daily. Uh, the Last week, he talked about how we need to submit to the Bible and community, that if we want to grow in our faith, it's not enough just to come to church once a week and let that be the, the sole expression of our faith but how we continually need to go to his word in community, read it, and submit our lives to it. Today, we are going to be talking about being the church. As a Grace Bible Church, we want to be the church. And today, we want to look at it from a a little bit of a different angle than how we've done it before. Um, Some of you might have kids who are the right age, but all of us have been at that age or have known kids of the age where their favorite question is, is why? 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 Regardless of what the answer is, the question is always why. And for some reason, it's like there's never a final, like, that's it. It's just there's always more. You can always answer more why questions. So today, as we approach the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're talking about being the church, we want to not go to what or how as much, but we want to start, start off with the question of why. Why? Why be the church? And here's my proposition to you today, that who we are and what we do as Grace Bible Church is a direct result and response to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that, 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 that proposition is going to be with us the whole way through, so I'm going to say it one more time that who we are and what we do as a church is a direct response to who Jesus is and what he has done. And when we approach this passage in this way, I really do believe that we'll get to the why. Why are we the church? And once we know the why, then we can talk about the what and the how. How do we do that? All right, so we are going to be reading 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 4 and read through verse 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word today, we just ask for your assistance. Assistance to to hear the word and to understand the word as you would have us. Assistance to, to being open to seeing our own sin, to, be, to seeing your, your law and your word as you, you would call us to live our lives. And Father, I ask for assistance as I, as I preach, that I would honor your word, that I would speak it clearly. We pray this, that you might be glorified in our lives, in our city, and in our world. Until you come again, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So we want to answer the questions. Who is Jesus? What has he done? And as a result of the answers to those questions, we want to answer the questions, who are we and what are we to do? So those are the four questions that we're going to answer out of this text today to answer the question, why? Why be the church? So we're going to start with a question, who is Jesus and what has he done? We find out who Jesus is when we read in verse 4. It says, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men in the sight, uh, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So in this passage, Jesus is portrayed to us as, as a living stone. And right away, we're saying it's not making sense to us. Because when we think of stones, we don't think of things that are living. We think of things that are, that are cold and hard and dead, that weight down our papers, that stump our toes. That's what we think of when we think of stones. Not something that is living, that is breathing. So we have to ask the question, when we answer the question, who is Jesus, when we say living stone, what does he mean? When he says Jesus is a living stone. And I think we get our hint, we get our answer in the text as we continue to read down in verse 8. Because what Peter's going to do is he's going to tell us where he has gotten this idea that Jesus is a living stone. And he gets this, this is actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 22. And this is what Peter quotes. This is the answer to what he means when he says Jesus is a living stone. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
So it's not that Jesus is just any stone, but Jesus is the cornerstone. If we want to find out what that means, we have to kind of go back to Isaiah chapter 28 and see the context. And what's happening in Isaiah chapter 28 is that you have this nation of Israel whose kings and rulers have rejected God. They said, God, we do not want you to to be our king. We want to follow what we think is best. And God, in response, is saying, okay, I am going to let you do that, but I also want you to know that I am rejecting you. And he says, in Zion, in Jerusalem, I am laying a cornerstone. A cornerstone is, is part of a foundation. So what Peter and what Isaiah are saying is that Jesus is not just any stone, but Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. So anything that God is doing in our world, anything that God has done in our world, is all built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And this is what God is doing in our world. Think, think, think with me about what our, our world can be like. We live in a world that is filled with disease, death, abuse, cruelty, and justice. That's the world that we live in. And it's easy for us to forget that because, man, we live in America where there's lots of good, there's lots of luxuries, but even when you get below the surface in our culture, that's the world that we live in. We live in in, in a dark, broken world. And God is saying through Jesus, I am laying this foundation where I'm going to do something to fix all of that. And I think this is important as well. This stone that God has laid in Zion, this Jesus, this is a cornerstone in Zion, in Jerusalem. So what the prophet Isaiah is saying is this is not just any foundation, this is a special foundation. What God is doing is something different, it's something special. And I don't know about you, but... Do foundations excite you? Foundations excite me. Um, whenever I was driving down Tremere and I saw that the lot beside Grace Lutheran had uh, been purchased and they started digging out all that dirt, and then the first big truck got out there. I was like, oh, what's it going to be? And then they started putting in that beautiful rock wall, and then my wife makes fun of me because I love walls. Uh, but they put in that beautiful rock wall. I was like, man, that's, that's so beautiful. What's it going to be? And then they laid the foundation. I was even more excited. And I thought, finally, Colleen's going to get a Panera. <laughs> and, and then it was a family dollar, which, which I like family dollar, but my excitement was let down a little bit. But this foundation that God has laid in Zion, this foundation of Jesus Christ, is not just any foundation. It's not going to be a foundation where you get excited and then be let down. But what God is laying, this foundation of Jesus Christ, is he's building a new temple. The temple in the Bible has always been a place uh, where God ruled and reigned. It was a picture of God's kingdom on this earth and what God was one day going to do. And he was saying, I'm going to do that through Christ. And there's a beautiful passage in the book of Revelations where it talks about what God is ultimately going to do through Jesus Christ. It's in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 2 through 5. Let me read it for you. This is uh, the Apostle John writing. 
as a very old man in exile, and he saw this vision. John said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Those former things that have passed away have been the result of sin and the curse that we are under. And what God is saying with Jesus is, I am doing something new with Jesus. And Jesus is my new temple and, and Jesus is going to be me with you, Emmanuel, God with us. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is God with us, who is bringing about and ushering in the kingdom of heaven, where he's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to heal every wound. He is going to rule and reign in justice. And I don't know about you, but I can get excited about that, that I can no longer have to turn on or read the news and be like, oh, God, this world we live in is horrible. But I can say, you're fixing it, and you're going to make it better. And I want to ask you the question of what are you living your life for? We're all living our life for something. And I want you to take whatever you're living your life for, and I want you to compare it to what I just read and what I just talked about. And my guess is, shouldn't stand in comparison. That God's plan and God's desire for this world and for our lives is so much greater and so much more beautiful than we could ever find anything to compete with that. That's who our God is. That is who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God, the temple, God with us, Emmanuel. Now we have to ask the question, what has Jesus done? Once again, we find our answer in the text. What has Jesus done? It says in verse 7 that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So that people are going to reject Jesus and they're going to say, I do not want what you have. What does Jesus have? What has Jesus done that they rejected? Once again, the answer is in the text. Uh, if we go down to verse 24, we haven't read this yet. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 this is what Jesus has done. This is what people are rejecting. This is our honor. He himself bore our sins in the body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Jesus is taking the curse of sin and all the pain and death that comes with it, and he is saying, I am going to put an end to it. And I'm going to put an end to it by allowing it to put an end to me. That's what happened on the cross. That when Jesus Christ was raised high on the tree, God looked at him, placed 
the sin and guilt that we deserve on him. And he died there. And when he died, the eternal communion that existed between father and son in all of eternity was ripped apart. That's what Christ has done for you. For your sake, he did this. For your sins, he did this. That you might know God, he did this. By his wounds, you are healed. There might be some of you in here like, man, I I haven't heard this before. And And if that's you, and you're saying, I want to believe in that. I want to live for that. Please, I'll be here up after the service. Come and find me, and we can talk more about that. But this is what we have so far. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the the cornerstone, the foundation, the temple. What has Jesus done? Jesus has worked redemption on our behalf. Now we can know who we are. We cannot know who we are until we know who he is. We cannot know what we are to do as a church until we know what he has done as our Savior. So this is where we're going to go. We're going to answer the question, who are we now? It's found in the same verse, chapter 4, that we found out who Jesus is. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It says, As you come to him, that's important, we'll come, to back, we'll come back to that. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's who God is. Now, we know how, now we're about to find out who we are. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So who are we? We too, like Jesus, are to be living stones. We are living stones. Those who call upon the name of Christ, each is a living stone being put together with other believers in Christ to build what is called a a spiritual house. Once again, it's a reference to the temple of God. The temple, don't forget, is, is a picture of God ruling and reigning in majesty and glory. It's a, the temple is a picture of, of God's sovereign and just rule and reign over his people. That's what the temple is. And Peter is saying everyone who calls on the name of Jesus is a stone in that temple. That's who we are. And we're beginning to see now what we as a church are supposed to be and do. Now that we know who we are, we're like Jesus. We're the temple. We need to be a picture to the rest of the world of God's rule and reign. That's who we're to be. All right, now we're going we're gonna to kind of finish today with what are we to do. And, and, and don't think we're almost done because this is where the list begins, all right? Uh, who, what are we to do? This is where the rubber meets the road. Our God, our Jesus is our temple, Emmanuel, God with us ushering in God's kingdom. He has worked redemption in our lives so that we too can be a part of that kingdom. Now we are being built up into a temple so that in this world, people can see and learn about God. Now, how do we do that? That's what we're answering right now. We're going to start back in verse 4 and work our way through. The first few words in verse 4 is our first key to what we're supposed to do. It says, as you come to him, as you come to him, 
Oftentimes when we think of coming to Jesus or we read this phrase, we might, we might get in our idea, in our head, that this is just our initial coming to Christ. As we come to Jesus to find salvation, this isn't what it's talking about here. In the original language, this, this is a, portrays the idea of repetitiveness, that you just don't come to Jesus once, but that you come to Jesus on a daily basis. If we are to be who we are supposed to be, if we are to be the temple of God, then it's not enough just to come to him for salvation like some cosmic fire insurance and then to stop. But we must continually go to Christ on a daily basis. This means that we need to go to God uh, in prayer, but also in the word. And I want to encourage you not to let that be a burden to you. Don't let that be something that you dread. Listen to how Peter describes uh, the word in verse 2. He said, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. The pure spiritual milk he's talking about is the word of God. We need to long for it. I know, man, we all have these cravings, right? And they're, they're almost, they seemingly are uncontrollable, but they are controllable. And I have this special drawer in my office that I hesitate to tell you about. But I, I didn't say this in the first service because the youth were in here, but now that they're in Sunday school, I'll say it. Uh, I had a special drawer in my office where I have a cup that is overflowing with, like, Dove dark chocolate. Um, and I have to tell you my journey with dark chocolate because when I first uh, was born, I was born a natural milk chocolate man. Um, I just liked the milk chocolate. I tasted dark chocolate. like, man, it's disgusting. It's bitter. It's no good. Uh, but as I grew older and my metabolism grew slower, I realized that <laughs> I, I probably need more dark, dark chocolate than milk chocolate. So I started eating dark chocolate to the point now where the first is like, oh, really, Lindsay, I have to eat this stuff? This is our dessert after dinner, dark chocolate. To now, where it was once a chore, it is now something that I crave. I crave so much that I keep a secret stash in my office. And that stash is the sole reason why I keep my door locked when I'm not there. <laughs> but I crave it. I long for it. And the same is true with the Word of God. You have to realize that before you come to Christ, everything about God is revolting to you. You don't want it. You don't like it. You want to stay far away from it. But as you come to know him. And as you grow closer to him, as Peter says, you taste him and you see that he is good. And as you draw closer and closer, that taste and that longing grows. And he's saying, come to Jesus every day. If you are to be who you are supposed to be and do what you are supposed to do, then you need to continually come to Christ. The second thing that we need to do is be holy. It says that we are uh, spiritual stones being built up, in, we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To be a holy priesthood. What does that word holy mean? It means to be set apart. It means to be different. And if I, this week I was trying to think of, of an opposite word to help define it. And the only word I could come up with was the word common. I think common is a, is a pretty decent antonym 
for, for holy. It's common is something that you normal every day. Everyone does it. Everyone has it. It's common. But something that is holy is something that is special. And the Bible tells us that our God is something is someone who is holy. Our God is different. Our God is set apart. There is no one else and nothing else like our God. That's who our God is. He's holy. And in Leviticus and even in First Peter, we are called to be holy as He is holy. But oftentimes we don't take that challenge, we don't take that command to be holy very seriously. And that will be a danger spot for us in our lives. Because when we do not go to God as holy, we don't consider Him as holy, we don't strive for that holiness, we end up being destroyed in our own lives. Now, for the illustration of that, I want to go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus. Um, and for those of you who have always thought the book of Leviticus is, is, is boring laws, this, this story will hopefully change that. It's, it's somewhat of a crazy story that will cause lots of questions in your mind. But there's a story of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. And back in Exodus chapter 30, God told the priest how he was to be worshipped. God said, I am a holy God, not a common God. I am set apart from everything else in this world. And I want you to worship me in that manner. And God gave a commandment to the nation of Israel and to the priests. He said, whenever you burn incense for me in the tabernacle, I do not want you to use what's called an unauthorized fire or a strange fire or, or a common fire. A common fire would be something that they were burning to cook their food, to boil water, whatever. That was a common fire. He said, when you come to worship me, I don't want you to use that common fire. I don't want you to use that unauthorized fire. I want a fire that is lit solely for me. It will be a holy fire set apart for my service. In Leviticus chapter 10, we read the story of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were going to worship God at the tabernacle. And I don't know if they were in a rush or what, but they said, you know what? Here's a fire. Let's just use that fire to burn our incense to God. And before they entered into the tabernacle, God struck them dead. Because God takes his holiness seriously. And I think the message for us is that when we are living our lives in this world, God takes our holiness serious as well. If we are going to live for him, if we are going to be called by his name, if we're going to be that temple that is showing people the greatness of our God, then we have to live our lives different from this world. We have to be countercultural. And I encourage you that, that if you are on that path of trying to be holy in your life, not to do it alone, but to find somebody who can walk that path with you, someone that you can confess your sins to and they can confess their sins to you, that you can encourage each other in the word, okay? But that, that's what I encourage you to do. Strive for a holy life. So we're to go to God daily. We are to be holy. Now, what type of holiness are to be? That's, that's, that's an adjective for something. What's it an adjective for? Priesthood. He said, I want you to be a holy priest. Oftentimes, uh, I, I grew up in the Baptist world, so when I hear priesthood of the believer, 
Uh, the way we always talk about that in the Baptist world is that we don't need a priest to mediate us for us anymore. That when we worship God, we can go directly to Christ and we can talk to God himself. And that's what we've always talked about when we talk about priesthood as believers. But I think there's, there's another aspect to it. And here's the aspect that I, that I want us to focus on today. What were the priests for? The purpose of the priests was to make God accessible. The purpose of the priests were to live in the middle of the people and say, let me show you how you can get to God. That's what the priests did in the Old Testament. And when Peter calls us a holy priesthood, he's calling us to do the same thing, that we are supposed to live out in our community, rubbing elbows and shoulders and living next to and working beside people who do not know Christ. And he is calling us to make God accessible to them. He is calling us to be their mediator to Christ, to say, this is how you get to Jesus. This is how you come to Christ and leading them to God. We are to be, as a church, a holy priesthood. I think for some of us, especially myself, we, we, live, in, in, uh, we live in a church bubble. Uh, I went to Baylor up, up the road for seminary, and they always had a thing called the Baylor bubble, which, have you all ever heard of anything like that? It's basically everything's Christianese and everything's Christian. Some of us live in a bubble like that where we are so insulated with the church and our church friends and Bible studies that we have no connecting points with the world. Um, we might live beside them, we might work with them, but we, really we have nothing to do with them. That's not what Peter's calling us to do. As a holy priesthood, we are to live among the people, to be with them, and we're supposed to have relationships with them to bring them to God. And this is what I encourage you to do. I'd encourage you to view every relationship you have purposefully. If our God is sovereign, and he is, then the people who are in your life are in your life for a reason. And the reason they are in your life is for you to be built up in this holy temple and to show them how good our God is. For some of you, you already have natural connecting points with people who are outside the church. For some of you, you're going to have to think, long and hard about how to start forming those. Uh, you might need to go eat breakfast at the same restaurant week in and week out at the same time so you can get to know your waiter. You might need to go to the same coffee shop when you drink your coffee. You might need to, to change the way you view peewee soccer. And soccer is just not an activity for your child, but a way for you to meet all the other parents of all the other kids to get to know them for the sake of the kingdom, for their sake, for their good. We need to be priests. And finally, we need to proclaim his excellencies. Verse 9, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. We are supposed to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of our darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what we're to do. That is our mission as a church. And I know oftentimes we, we get wrapped up around one famous quote by St. Francis of Assisi. I want to say two things about it. Here's the quote. Uh, Preach the gospel always 
and if necessary, use words. Have y'all heard that? Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Two things about that. One, if you read his writings, he never said it. Um, it's still attributed to him everywhere. It wasn't attributed to, to him till, till years and years later after his death. Um, so that's one thing. But the second thing is, it doesn't work. Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Of course you have to use words. That's what preaching is. That's what proclaiming is. It's using words. To, to say preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words, would be like me saying to you, make omelets every morning for breakfast, and if necessary, use eggs. That doesn't work. You have to use words to proclaim his excellencies. And I know what that quote is saying. It's saying that we need to live an honorable life because we are living in front of people. And yes, that is true. But it's not enough to only live an honorable life. We have to live an honorable life, and we also have to use our words to proclaim who our God is to people. Because think about it. You could know somebody and you could love them, and you could serve them, and you can show them God's goodness through your actions all day long. But if you never speak the name of Christ to them, and if you never tell them what Christ has done for you on the cross, will that person ever come to God? Not if that's all there is. Words are necessary what Paul tells us in the book of Romans. He's saying, he said, uh, faith comes by hearing. If we are to hear, then we have to use our words. And finally, all that we've talked about, my, my final encouragement to you is to do it together. Remember, Peter said that we each are living stones, being built up into a spiritual house. We are not on our own. We are not alone. I encourage you to be in community with one another. Be in community with one another. When you come to God daily, be in community with one another. When, when you proclaim His excellencies, when you're holy, when you, are, when you are offering your spiritual sacrifices, be in community with one another and do those things with someone else in church because you're not alone. And together you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, today, we want to do that. We want to proclaim his excellencies through the ordinance of communion. Communion, according to Paul, is a way that we can say, this is who our God is, and one day he's coming back. And that's why we do communion. So I'm going to go ahead and ask if the men who are helping out with communion would come forward. And as they come forward, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being our living stone. We pray, Lord, that as we take this communion, that we will look into our lives. Lord, that we will consider our own sin before we take this element. That we will not be like Nadab and Abihu and approach you in an unholy manner. And we pray, Lord, that this ordinance will speak into our souls, that will encourage us as we live our Christian walk.